Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. It's December. The Christmas songs are on the radio. The Christmas trees are up. And for many of you, that's been a few weeks. There'll be Christmas jumper days at schools and at work. And there's Christmas hats on, on some people. And you'll start asking your friends and friends will start asking you this yearly question. What are you doing for Christmas this year? Now, most years you'll be able to say without doubt, you know your family traditions, they're the same every year. The little quirks and nuances that only your family does. But this year when you answer, you may have to pause a little longer. You may have to give a little bit of an extra explanation. You may say, we usually do this and this, but this year we're just seeing so-and-so. Usually we go to church on Sunday morning, but this year. I wonder how this uncertainty sits with you. Often we hold these times dear. And are you thinking to yourself, this is not gonna feel like a real Christmas. It's gonna be a bit disappointing. Or actually, are you thinking this is an opportunity to do something new? I suppose what I'm asking is, when you see this glass of beer, do you think to yourself, this is a glass half empty? Or do you think this is a glass half full? I suppose, are you an, a pessimist or are you an optimist? Now, between my wife, Sarah, and I, one of us is a pessimist and one of us is an optimist. And it makes for a very interesting year this year. I don't know if we're just the lucky ones or if that's normal but in relationships, but we've definitely had our trials. You see, the pessimist looks at the world around them and they see the hardship. They see the things that are wrong and they want them to change but they look into the future and they think if they don't change, then things are just going to get worse. The truth is they don't actually want their predictions of doom and gloom to come true. But this year, too often they have. Unfortunately, it's not been a good year to be a pessimist. While the optimist doesn't want to live in the present, they want, don't want to have to deal with the reality and the hardship around them. And they look to the future as an escape. Things will be better round the corner. They're not necessarily basing it on things, but that is where they have their hope, just in the future. However, too often this year, the hardships have been just that bit too, too hard. And the future hasn't been even close to what they'd hoped. It has not been a good year to be an optimist. So this is the start of a three-part series leading up to Christmas. This week is the foretelling, next week is the event, and um, finally it is the, re um, the reason. And it's my desire that this week that we can look at the prophets who foretold the coming of Christ. And we can prepare our hearts and our minds for a fresh revelation of the Christmas story. That we can tune into the way 
that they looked at the future and what they hoped for. So the main passage we're going to be looking at today is Isaiah 9. Now, Isaiah might not be the kind of book that you regularly delve into. Maybe it's just at Christmas when we hear the common verses. So what I thought I would do is I thought I'd give you a bit of a background of what's going on so we can see the context that he is speaking into. And that will help us understand what's going on. So Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter kingdom period, so after King David, where there was a series of bad kings. And, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judea. First of all, he, he sent a message of judgment. He warned, um, warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against the covenant they'd made with God um, would come at a cost. God was going to use the empires of Assyria and Babylon um, to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. In Isaiah 1, it says, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, um, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Isaiah was very aware of the present predicament both he and his fellow people were in. He speaks the words of, of God to the people, hoping that they will change, but also warning of, um, of worse to come if they do not. Later in the chapter, it says, learn to do what to right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are as um, sins are, are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will devour, be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah was a prophet to the people of Israel at his, in his time. Like many prophets before him, he hoped to be the messenger to wake up the people and turn them away from their wrongdoing and towards God. To stop them um, continuing in their wrong ways and being handed over to their enemies. Although Isaiah is famed for his predictions of the coming hope of Jesus Christ, he was not a daydreamer in the future. He was called to be present in his time, not to water down the hardship and the injustice, but to address it and to warn what would happen if it didn't change. So as we approach the famous chapter, chapter nine, um, part of the north of Israel had already been taken over, um, already been taken over by the Assyrians. And this was a real, really devastating blow for the nation of Israel. Many of the tribes were up there were either scattered or killed, and the, um, Israel was never going to be the same again. And this is the context that these verses are spoken into. And it starts like this. Nevertheless, 
I love that it starts like that. It says, nevertheless, it's, it's acknowledging what has gone, but something else is coming. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, And in the future, he will honor the Galilee, honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And he starts a little um, a poem. He says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah was burdened with the reality, reality of what was around him, but God was pointing him towards hope. I don't know if you feel like you've been walking in darkness at any time, or if you feel like that particularly this year, but this is a great message of general hope. That those who living in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has been dawn, has dawned. But this is not a general message of hope. God and Isaiah are building on a continued revelation of God's specific plan for humanity. Isaiah's message of hope was a fulfillment of God's covenant, covenant promises all the way through the Bible. It says the future king will be from the line of David in 2 Samuel 7. It says that he will lead his people in obedience in Exodus 19. And all of this so that he would bless all the nations as he promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12. So as we remember Isaiah 9 that I read just a moment ago, let me read Matthew 4, which talks about Jesus. It says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zeppelin and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zeppelin and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Of those in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Isaiah was not, um, not simply an optimist or a pessimist, but he viewed the future with a biblical hope, a hope in the coming Jesus. He trusted that God would fulfill the promises he had stated the whole way through the Bible, that a savior was coming to lift us out of darkness. Now, it'd be so easy for me to just leave the talk there. The answer is Jesus. It's the Sunday school message. Let's put our hope in him. But we all know that following him isn't always that easy. Otherwise, maybe we would. So let's move on to the next part of the passage in Isaiah, and this is the really famous part. It says, for, us, um, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the great, greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, 
establishing and holding it with justice and righteousness from the time on and forever. Now, as I read this, I find myself relating to the first century Jews who did not see Jesus as the promised Messiah. It's so easy for us to look back in hindsight and say, how could they not see it? But firstly, remember, this passage in Isaiah was, um, uh, was written down 700 years before Jesus arrived. Now, I know that I'm part of the Amazon Prime generation. And if something doesn't arrive that I'm expecting in seven days, I've given up complete hope, let alone 700 years. But also, as I read this, I think, did Jesus really fulfill this in the most obvious way? And so it's not surprising that this was not necessarily what they expected. See, the history of Israel quite often looked like this, that the people would turn away from God, that God would give them what they want and handed them over to their, their own ways, and they would be um, oppressed and taken over by a foreign power. Then either a messenger would come or they would cry out to God, and the, and the messenger, the prophet, would lead them um, away and back to the promised land. So it seemed fitting that the first century Jews who were being oppressed by the Roman Empire would expect a similar thing. They'd expect a government without end that would overthrow the Roman Empire. But this was a real revelation to me, this next part. Jesus is described as a wonderful counselor. Now this does not mean that he's just a great therapist, although he is a good listener. A counsellor in this context means that he is a great strategist. He is someone that advises what is the best way to go, how to win in a situation, how to make the most of the situation, to plan and think all the parts together. What would you do to make that work well? So Jesus may not have defe um, defeated the Roman Empire, but he did bear the government on his shoulders as he stood in front of Pontius Pilate. He may not have worn a, um, a crown as a king, but he did wear a crown of thorns on the cross. He may not have been lifted up on a throne, but he was lifted on the throne in heaven at his ascension. Now this was not what the people were expecting, and it may have at times looked like the opposite to what they think should, thought should have happened. But we forget that he is a wonderful counsellor, he is the greatest strategist the world has ever seen. You see, he did not come to just to defeat one evil empire. He came to defeat evil itself. He did not come to create one opportunity for one generation to come back to God. He came to create an opportunity for every generation to come back to God. He did not come just to save the Jewish nation, but he came to save every nation. You see, the way Jesus came to earth as a baby, living as a humble servant and dying on a cross was the perfect strategy to achieve the goals foretold through the whole Bible. And as we trust in God, we quite often put our own expectations on what he should do. And we, should, we kind of um, say, we, this is the timing that will work for me. But God is a wonderful counsellor. His ways are better than ours. 
And if we are going to see what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of others, we need to release our expectations and truly trust him. I have an advent calendar with me and on it are all the names that uh, were given to Jesus. And um, I'm going to light it now and we're just going to pray through this and, um, and let's spend a moment pausing and letting God prepare our hearts and minds to hear the Christmas story afresh again. Father God, as we prepare our hearts and minds to hear the Christmas story again, may we be aware of the hard reality around us. May we be honest about our own struggles. May we find opportunities to serve others as you have commanded. Let us turn back to you and like the prophets and how Jesus taught us to pray. Let us pray, your kingdom come. Father God, as we prepare our hearts and minds to hear the Christmas story again, we are aware of how unusual and uncertain this Christmas period may be for many. Let us not be overwhelmed by pessimism or blind optimism, but let us have a biblical hope that looks to you. As we acknowledge that you had a plan from the very beginning that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we know that we can put our hope in you. Father God, as we prepare our hearts and minds to hear the Christmas story again, we know that our preconceptions and expectations can hinder us from seeing what you're doing. But we ask that you help us to surrender what is stopping us from fully trusting. Allow us to be free this Christmas to see the marvelous story afresh again that we can see what a wonderful counsellor you are. And as we look at our own plans, Lord, may we focus on you and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk Thank you for listening.